0: Choir, that was exquisite, and thank you. But that youth anthem is the song that's going to be in my head the rest of the week, so thank you. Thank you, choirs. Well, if you're a member of First Pres of Fort Lauderdale, then on Friday morning, you should have received an email from Reverend Dr. Pam Mastin sharing her exciting news um, that, that she has a new call that will take her away from First Presbyterian Church of Fort Lauderdale. And, and if you didn't, then we need your email address. Um, so please put that on a Connect card and give it to one of our greeters on the way out. Um, over the course of the next couple weeks, we're, we're going to have opportunities to celebrate Dr. Mastin's ministry here at First Pres over these last years. And I can tell you it has been one of the great privileges of my life to have the opportunity in serving alongside Dr. Mastin over these last years. Sunday, next Sunday, November 26th, will be her last Sunday in worship with us. And in order to recognize her and celebrate her ministry here, we're going to have a reception across the street after this service in the fellowship. and all are invited uh, to attend that. Uh, Hopefully, you also received an email from me just outlining a a little bit about what that means for us at First Presbyterian Church of Fort Lauderdale. Um, Your session met on Thursday night and discussed some next steps, and I wanted to share that with you this morning. Um, We have been in active conversations with a group called Ministry Architects. They're a church consulting firm. They've worked with more than 1,000 churches in the country uh, in order to bring them in to facilitate a congregational-wide process of strategic visioning. And if we choose to utilize their services, Ministry Architects will help us to prayerfully discern as a congregation and as a body of faith how God is calling us to serve in Fort Lauderdale in 2024 and beyond. Um, and this congregational wide process would inform who we would be looking for as we identify the next person that God calls to serve in the role of associate pastor here at First Presbyterian Church of Fort Lauderdale. Uh, as a part of that process, we'll be appointing a strategic visioning team of lay leaders to walk alongside ministry architects in this process. And, and if you have been Presbyterian for any time at all, you know this is going to take some time. And so, we're working through right now, exploring a bridge solution um, in order to get us from today to that point and through that discernment process. I've been in conversation with Reverend Dr. Daris Boltina, who is the executive presbyter of our presbytery, and he's working on a list of pastors who are already local that could provide us with some short-term help as we enter into the Advent season. Um, I'm so incredibly proud of the work that our session is doing, our deacons, and our congregation as a whole. And so as, as we enter into this next season, I want to ask you to do two things today. I want to ask you to pray for our elders, for our deacons, and for our staff as we begin moving through this transition. And I also, I want you to pray for Dr. Maston and the Mastin family as they enter into this new season of ministry and this transition. Amen? Amen? Our scripture this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. And I want to invite you to turn there now in your pew Bibles, the Bibles that you've brought with you from home or on your mobile device. And we'll be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But, but before we read scripture this morning, let's say a word of prayer. Come, Holy Spirit, open our minds and hearts this day, that we may be illumined by your living word and walk together as children of light. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. But hear the words of Paul in his letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When they say there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and there will be no escape. But you, beloved are not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief for you are all children of light and children of the day we are not of the night or of darkness so then let us not fall asleep as others do but let us keep awake and be sober for those who sleep sleep at night and those who are drunk get drunk at night But since we belong to the day, let us be sober and put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has destined us not for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up each other, as indeed you are doing. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, what do we make of all this talk of, of being awake or being asleep? Well, after our session meeting on Thursday night, I, I was ready to, to go home and get some rest. Our session typically meets on the fourth Thursday of the month, and we usually finish up around 7 or 7:30. We we had bumped that meeting up a week because of the Thanksgiving holiday coming in a couple of days. And so as we wrapped up our meeting around 7 or 7.15, I I was ready to go home. And so I went back to my office to, to pack up my things. And wouldn't you know, I couldn't find my keys. You know that feeling. When you're ready to be done and on to the The next thing, and there's this one seemingly trivial thing that keeps you from being done. That's right where I was. I'd looked in the drawer, the place where I put my keys, and and they weren't there, and I'd emptied my messenger bag out onto my desk and searched through all of the pockets there, and it, it wasn't there, and With no luck, I decided I must have left them back in the chapel in the sky, across the street on the third floor where our session had met. And so I I grabbed all of my things and loaded my bag up and schlepped it across the street to find my keys, only to arrive there and no keys. And I thought, aha, maybe I left them in the choir room. I had checked in on the cathedral choir that night and I thought maybe I'd left them in there. So I tried to stealthily look in there without giving away that I was back for some unknown reason. No keys in the choir room. And so I, I called our clerk of session and I called her to see if she had picked them up by accident and she hadn't done that. And so I went back to my office again and I looked in the drawer. And then I emptied my messenger bag. Looking in all of the pockets again. Well, without my keys, I was grateful at least to have a spare set for the car so that I could go home. I decided enough was enough. It was time to go home, to get some dinner, and to go to bed, to get some sleep. Because Amy and I have discovered that regardless of what time we go to bed, the children wake up at 630 we needed some sleep, and, and sleep is a good thing. And, but this is not the kind of sleep that Paul is referring to in his letter to the Thessalonians. I did eventually find my keys, by the way. You know, last week's message, if, if you were here, from the Reverend Dr. Jim Mead, he, he was preaching from the Gospel of Matthew and from Amos. And in the Gospel of Matthew, it dealt with this story of, of the bridesmaids, of the ten virgins who are waiting for the bridegroom to show up. It's a, a story about being prepared for the day of the Lord. And, and, the, and the, uh, the topic in, in Amos also spoke to who we are and how we are to conduct ourselves as Christians. Specifically in Amos, it warned against False worship. It warned against being a people who seemingly have it all together, but are not living in ways that are honoring to God's people. Amos, in fact, says that, that you are cheating in business, that you're neglecting the poor, and I want nothing to do with you. Well, our language from 1 Thessalonians is similar this morning and begins. By saying, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The day of the Lord. This phrase was, was used in the passage from Amos just this last week, and it's, it's often used throughout prophetic literature to describe the, the coming divine action of God. Sometimes that's God's retribution against foreign nations. Sometimes it's it's God's punishment of Israel. A little bit like when I was a younger person and I had done something I shouldn't have and my mom said, well, wait till your father comes home. That's a little bit like wait for the day of the Lord in that (laughs) prophetic context. But it was also used to describe the coming vindication of the oppressed and the establishment of, of the kingdom of God. And and so here, Paul is speaking to Christians in Thessalonica. And the circle of those who are becoming believers in the way, those who are coming to know who Jesus is, is beginning to widen. And no longer is it restricted to just the Jewish people, but Paul is bringing the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. And that simply means to all of those who are not Jewish. Which also means that the background and context in which we are finding the gospel message preached is changing. These folks didn't have this understanding of, of the prophets and what the day of the Lord might have meant. And so here in Thessalonians, Paul is trying to help them understand, helping these new Christians who have questions about this coming day that Paul is talking about. And so Paul seeks to provide them an understanding and a picture of just what the Christian life will require. And that's where I think today our text has something to say to us. Our text from both last week, taken together with our text for this week, they really form this complete picture of what the life of the believer is supposed to look like. Like two sides of a coin. However, all too often, churches in America tend to focus on only one side of the coin or the other. And and here's what I mean Last week in Amos, God, speaking through the prophet, says, your worship is no good to me if you are not caring for the marginalized, if you are not seeking freedom for the oppressed, if you are not lifting up the poor. Your worship is no good to me if you are not seeking justice, if you are not loving your neighbor. You see, Christians, we need to be concerned with doing justice. But our text this week Our text this week flips to the other side of the same coin, teaching us that Christians are to live lives set apart from the world around us. Paul uses these common themes of light and darkness, of being awake or being asleep in describing how our lives as believers should differ from the rest of the world. Picking up at verse 5, he says, "'For you are all children of light.'" And children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness, so then let us not fall asleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who are drunk, get drunk at night. You see, Paul is seeking to differentiate the life of a believer from the life of an unbeliever. Paul, is calling the Thessalonians to a life of holiness. And yet, churches in America seem to have divided on this. All too often, it seems as though churches focus on one or the other. It is either justice or it is holiness. Churches are all about rallying around certain social issues or causes or they are all about how we live, And what our texts from this week and last, taken together, make clear is that we're not given the option of this or that, of either or. We're called to both justice and holiness. To both loving our neighbor and living a life that is honoring and loving of God. We're called to care for the marginalized, seek freedom for the oppressed, to lift up the poor, and to live Lives set apart from the rest of the world. And so that's why we're involved in in ministries like yesterday's Thanksgiving Basket Drive. People gathered here at this church and provided more than 900 meals to families across our community. When you leave worship today, look across the street and you'll find the Angel Tree Ministry set up with tags ready for you to take to provide a gift of hope to families of incarcerated individuals. Here in our community. It's why, just this next week, we're going to have representatives from Habitat for Humanity here to share with you the good news that we're embarking on building our 21st house here in this community. Justice matters. But that's not all. (laughs) That's not all that we are called to. God also wants us to live holy lives, lives that are set apart, lives that look different than the lives of those around us. And that's what our text is about today. That's the challenge. I think sometimes we Christians, we get tripped up when it comes to understanding this call to holiness. We often look at the Christian life of holiness as a a list of all of the things that we're not supposed to do. Don't say those words. Don't dress that way, especially not in church. Don't drink that. Frankly, it's unhelpful. I think there's a far more helpful paradigm to operate under. You know, a few weeks ago, we... We took a look at what Jesus termed the greatest commandment, to to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Rather than interpreting a life of holiness as a laundry list of all the things that we can't do, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to ask yourself one singular question when it comes to evaluating behaviors. Will this, whatever it is, in whatever context you find yourself in, better equip you to love God and love neighbor? Will this behavior better equip me to love God and to love neighbor? Because the reality is, when it comes to what to do and what not to do, there's a whole lot more gray in here than there is just black and white. Which in some regard is admittedly more challenging. I, I like nice, neat rules. But the reality is, it's, it's just not that simple. And you may say, Nick, I, I don't know if I'm up to that. You know, When I look at my track record, you'll see that I've made some not so good decisions. I'm right there with you. But here's the good news. And here's the news that Paul wanted those in Thessalonica to hear. It's that you have what you need. You have the equipment that you need to live lives of holiness. Because as a believer, you are a child of light. And God promises to give you what you need to live the way God created you to live. In verse 8, Paul says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober and put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, now here in this passage, Paul is, is referencing Isaiah 59, verse 17, in which Isaiah writes, God put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. The armor, these tools that Paul describes here, they belong to God, and they are God's to bestow, and they are bestowed upon the believer. The translation that we find here in verse 8 and in our new revised standard version, I think in some regard is actually unhelpful because it seems to say that it is up to us to put them on. But what the Greek, I think, more accurately reflects is this, that since we are children of the day clothed with the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation, then let us Be sober, then let us live lives that are set apart, then let us be holy. You see, you have them. The breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation. You have them, whether you are aware of it or not. You children of light, you possess the tools that you need to live these lives of holiness. But I believe we allow the world to convince us otherwise. To convince us that that we are not, in fact, enough. Friday morning, I came into the office determined to find those keys. I mentioned it to Michelle, who's our executive assistant to the pastors, who immediately began suggesting places that I might have left them. Did you check in your desk? Where did you last see them? Have you looked in your bag? And and while I truly was grateful to have a partner in my quest for the keys, internally, I was rolling my eyes (laughs) (laughs) at being asked to look in all of the places that I had already looked. But to humor her, I began looking again. Together we looked in my desk, and together we looked in my bag. And Michelle said, What about that other pocket? And I said, Well, I've looked in my bag. And while I knew it wasn't there because I'd emptied my bag twice, I opened it only to find the keys in the bag I'd emptied multiple times. The bag that I'd had on my shoulder every trip up the stairs to the chapel in the sky, to the. <laughs> every trip into the choir room and back into my office. They had been there the whole time. I'd simply failed to recognize it. In the midst of my own stuff, right? In the midst of my own need to get home and focused on whatever. I was blinded to their presence. It didn't make them any less there. So, friends, what is blinding you to the reality of God's equipping you children of light? What is preventing you from from seeing that God has given you and will give you exactly what you need? You know, maybe it's maybe it's a busy schedule. Maybe. It's a disappointment of a broken relationship again. Maybe it's that illusion of self-sufficiency that, that you don't actually need God's help and God's equipping because you've got this. Or, or maybe, maybe it's a shame that you're carrying with you of a whole host of previously bad decisions. Friends, children of light, hear this. Regardless of where you've been, God has given and is giving you whatever it is you need to be who God has created you to be. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.